They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. Prepare to have your mind blown. Welcome back, motherfuckers, to another episode of the Juan Juan Podcast. This is a little bit different today. I got this thing going on with Thomas from Paranoid American. What's up, Thomas? Hey, man. Hey, Juan. We got this little thing going on. We got the occult book club that we're going to be doing maybe once a month to break down a different piece of literature that is perhaps unknown, has hidden meanings, something or other, right? And today we're going to be talking about the Initiates of the Flame by Daddy Manly P. Hall, <laughs> right? All hail Daddy Manly P. Hall. He is the fucking OG. The senpai. Yeah, the senpai. And this dude, right, this was his first work. And... It was, I don't remember what year it was released in. Like 1922. 1922, exactly 100 years, right? And, dude, I can't imagine when you read this, it's so poetic, right? It, it's some of the, the, the analogies that he uses, he's so poetic. But, but before we get into all that shit, I, I forget. Plug your stuff, Paranoid. American, plug your stuff so people can find you. The, oh, yeah, the yeah, front, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A bunch of comics. You can read them for free for a short period until they're on Amazon. Speaking of Amazon, got a whole bunch of uh, conspiracy theory-related uh, coloring books and comic books. But just pop in, what is it? Um, Cult of the All-Seeing Eye is one. And then Paranoid Portraits, which has art by the, the famous, world-famous Shane Goldwyn. <laughs> So, yeah, make sure to follow me on social media at the Juan Juan Podcast. Make sure to follow Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the Juan Juan Podcast. Get exclusive content on there that will only be released on there. 
And yeah, let's get into this shit. So the initiates of the flame, Manly P. Hall, his first work, bro. And what I was going to say was he was at the age of what, 21 or 22, he released this. He was so fucking ahead of his time. Like the, the, what he talks about in this, I can't imagine him. Like when you were like, oh, what were we doing at the age of 22 or 21? (laughs) I don't want to say I'm here. (laughs) It wasn't impressive though. I wasn't writing books. But Dude, you know, I I started my journey later on in life, right? now. I'm 27 now, and I started my journey a little bit later in life of uncovering this. And sometimes I kick myself in, in the back or whatever, however the saying goes. I wish I would have paid more attention, right? Because imagine if I would have started. And when I was in elementary, yeah, I was reading about Bigfoot and my favorite thing. I started with the dinosaurs. I was obsessed with dinosaurs. And I, re- <laughs> I always remember, bro, in the second grade or third grade, my teacher wouldn't let me check out dinosaur books because they were on the other side of the library that was for the, for the older kids. And she would never let me fucking take out any books from that side of the library until one day I was like, I want to fucking read about the dinosaurs. She, what is she trying to hide from me? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, what are you trying to fucking hide? So, and then my first conspiracy was was the Bermuda Triangle. That was like one of the big ones for me. Okay. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, but I've always been fascinated by like aliens and all this stuff. And whenever you would see like a new show come out, I'd be like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna catch something on camera this the, on this show. This is gonna be different. You watch it and they never show anything. <laughs> Yeah, I got a, I got a firm belief though is that if they really got it on on camera, you're gonna be seeing it in the news or somewhere at least before you're gonna see it on that popular TV show. Yeah, like Ancient Aliens, right? Yeah, <laughs> thing's been on air for fucking ever, and they still, you know, they talk about the same thing. Like the, 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 hidden, the hidden treasure ones, I feel the same way about. Like if you if you would have found the treasure, we'd we'd know before it aired. Yeah, like the skull, the skull island one. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm talking about? And so. I can't imagine this young man, right, in his early 20s, how, if he knew this much already from this, from, from his first piece of work, which is, it's like dipping your toes in a little bit of, of symbolism, not so much iconography, but symbolism. It, it, he breaks down different symbols, and then he talks a lot about the flame. And the entire, it's a quick read, it's only about, how many pages is it? Is it like 60-something pages, Tom? Or 80-something? It was 60, but that's if you're reading it online with the double spread. So you can kind of multiply that uh, by two. But, yeah, it's some, somewhere. It's, it's a short read. It's about big an hour. Print, lots of big pictures. Yeah. It's it's about an hour read. And so when I started reading it, right, I'm a Manly P. Hall fan. You can see the influence that H. H.P. Vlavatsky had on him in, in this book. You can see that. You can see the Freemasonry uh, uh, ideas in here. You can see what else did you see in there? You saw it was Freemasonry. He had he did a lot of nods to like ancient Egypt. He talks a, a lot about Buddhism and he talks about various cultures. And the the culmination I think is the Initiates of the Flame. And you notice he always has flame or fire with a capital F. Mm-hmm. Uh, he likens this to like this monotheistic God concept. But I I feel like he keeps it vague enough that yeah. the way that I read it, the flame could kind of be that like Promethean fire inside yes. a person that's kind of driving them. But there's also a likeness where he talks about that fire that's in the, the literal sun in our solar system 
is made of the exact same material that that sort of you know Promethean spiritual fires inside of you. But I I don't know if to read that 100% literal, but I I love the the concept behind that where it's this like unified theory, and I think that's kind of what reminded me that I like about Hall so much is that he kind of tries to come up with this universal theory that ties all cultures and all religions into this one concept. Um, so that's, you know, I think that was sort of like the premise of this book, essentially. Yeah, he also name drops the Atlanteans, too, in here. He talks yeah, about he the Atlanteans. He mentions that the Atlanteans the, were the first ones to build the pyramids and that the ancient um, Egyptians just kind of built on top of what the Atlanteans had, had left behind. So, yeah, and the, the entire time that I was reading this, I was I had Prometheus on my mind, right? That, that fire that he gave to man, and he pissed off the Titans, and, they, you know, they, they tied him up. and then He stole it. Yeah, yeah he, he stole, stole, it. stole it. And then, obviously, Hercules came on, and, and was it the eagle to eat away his liver, right? And it would regenerate every day, and he was tied up to the rock, to some fucking pillar or some shit. So, the initiates of the flame, Manly P. Hall, he who lives the life shall know the doctrine. And apparently he did all these drawings himself. So I encourage the listeners to go in and check these drawings out. Apparently he did them himself. So very, very impressive stuff. For and I think another thing too, that, that made it so impressive. You consider the time 1922. He's a young, he's a young guy at this point, And he did this entire work essentially by himself derived from other works, but the organization of it, the the breaking it into chapters, the illustrations that he chose to pick, and how cleanly he was able to describe them, it just it just kind of goes and shows why a lot of his work is so approachable and you know why it's so highly recommended. It's very user friendly, right? It's like super straightforward, but then how like you said has that cloud of mysticism and and he omits just enough to <laughs> just the tip. He just leaves the tip in, right? And you're like, oh yeah, and then. So we're going to go through this and I'm going to, I highlighted different uh, spots in it that stood out to me. And then I know Thomas took some notes. So I want to start with the introduction and the very first sentence, right? Few realize that at the present stage of civilization in this world, there are souls who like the priests of ancient temples, walk the earth and watch the, and guard the sacred fires that burn upon the altar of humanity. And I was like, whoa, just from the first thing I was like, <laughs> right? It just blew my mind. And he's talking about the watchers. And then my favorite one is when he gets into the Philosopher's Stone, which that, that one just fucking blew me away. But the watchers, right? You have the Elohim. You have the Nephilim, right? In the book of Genesis, the watchers. The watchers who are, what, watching El, the, this God figure, Yahweh, whoever it may be, conduct this experiment, right, on what we are were like the zoo that he made. And then when he saw that the Elohim and all these people, the, the fallen angels were fucking his creations, that's what pissed him off. And that's why he brought forth the flood, right? The, 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 the whole Noah's Ark, Atrahasis. And yeah, all. It was, the, it was the, uh, the, the divine undo button essentially. Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. So that's the very first line in the introduction. And then, I highlight here, a great hand reaches out from the unseen and regulates the affairs of man. It reaches out from that gr that great spiritual flame, which nourishes all created things. The never-dying fire that burns on the sacred altar of cosmos. That great fire, which is the spirit of God. And I am subscribed to the idea that 
this figure of Satan or Lucifer or whatever is a misconstrued idea of a westernized philosophy. And, And we're talking about Christianity, Catholicism, where they've painted this picture. We always, all throughout history, we have the battles of the two brothers, right? Enki and Enlil set in, in Osiris or whatever his other name is. Uh, was it Osiris or what the fuck's the other name? The two Egyptian brothers. Jeez. Anyways, you have Cain and Abel, right? You have the always that duality, the good person and the bad person. One of them cares about the human race. The other one doesn't. But then he talks yeah, about you're, the, you're defining the, those opposite poles of duality, essentially. Yeah, the duad. And, but but on here, what stood out to me was that he talks about this great hand that regulates the affairs. So is, and then he says it's God, which is the spirit of God. So is God good and evil? Is he both the same being? You know what I mean? Because if we break down the whole Luciferian and, and Satan archetype, it go you can trace that back to a person to 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 who. Who uh, I forget the guy in the Bible that was talking to him, but right the the famous uh, old Morning Star uh, verse in the Bible, he was talking about a king, a Babylonian king, right? And then we break that down to Saint Lucifer, maybe, maybe, but, but we're never gonna know, Thomas. That's the whole thing, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, because we're talking about mythology here, and the 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 thing that makes mythology work so well is that it can mean the things that it has to mean to the people that are interpreting it, and that's why these archetypes are so powerful. Like you've got the wise old man, you've got the trickster, you've got your antagonists and protagonists, but their role in this overall story and the mechanism, they don't always prescribe some kind of morality. In fact, a lot of the times it's almost like an amoral thing where you kind of derive that based on the context. One of my, my favorite examples, I'll probably misquote this. It was either Herodotus or it was like a Marco Polo story, but they mentioned that, They'd gone to some foreign land, and when the elders died, the um, the rest of the, the clan would get around. They would eat their bodies. And to someone from sort of like a Catholic uh, background, this would almost seem absolutely sacrilege to you know eat somebody else. Like this this idea of cannibalism, but really it was this this sign of like high uh, deep respect of wanting to pass on the knowledge in their culture. So in one culture, what would seem like the most horrendous, murderous, monstrous act was really like the highest form of respect and vice versa. They might come over here and see you, you know, digging up a hole and throwing the body in there, lighting it on fire and sending it off into the uh, the ocean. And that might be seen as like this evil, murderous thing. So I think when you're talking about like the mythology, especially when it spans, you know, hundreds and thousands of years, it's it's really hard to kind of prescribe a certain aspect of it as being like the good guys versus the bad guys but i but also on the concept of lucifer i think that there's also a a hidden um sort of a reference in here where albert pike i think was one of the first to introduce this concept of lucifer into Mm -hmm. his occult speaking in in the you know the western sort of culture but i think in his direct quote from morals and dogma he mentions that lucifer's um main sin was this pride mm-hmm. so it's almost like a fault but again it's he's describing this this archetype of you know the the point of lucifer existing isn't to show him as a being and him as this antagonist it's to show like his pride or it's to show him in opposition or juxtaposition of something else yeah 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 and, and you're completely right on that right we we have different cultures 
different practices and things can be interpreted differently, right? We, we know this because if you go to a different country, you know, if you slurp your soup, it's good. But then you go to the other one, it, it, it's bad. You know what I mean? Better example than eating uh, your, your grandpa, but yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> if we turn again to the races now dead, we shall, if we look, find the cause of their destruction. The light had gone out. When the flame within the body is withdrawn, the body is dead. When the light was taken from the altar, the temple was no longer the dwelling place of a living God. He talks about how black magic overshadowed Egypt. The light upon the altar grew weaker and weaker. And the priest lost the word, the name of the flame. Little by little, the flame flickered out. And as the last spark grew cold, a mighty nation died, buried beneath the dead ashes of its own spiritual fire. So he's talking about, and I've heard people talk, I've, I've heard Alex Jones talk about this, right? Where uh, they started sacrificing people and all this dark art shit, and then they finally fell. Right. And, the, and you can relate this. I know I know you love QAnon. You can relate that to QAnon with the pedophiles and, and you. <laughs> so but that flame did not die like like spirit of which is the essence. It cannot die because it is life and life cannot cease to be. So, again, very poetic. And we keep referencing this flame, this light, this thing thing right the, the 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 spirit of god and that's always bothered me a little bit about these quote-unquote occultists or whatever you want to call them that they talk about right all the and i subscribe to the idea that god is the universe right we shouldn't mm -hmm. label him as this guy who's in the in the sky in heaven you know on a, on a throne that's, that's the anthropomorphized yes. version that we can look at and see ourselves in it easier but but I think the point of this flame and the, the whole, at least in this book, when he's talking about monotheism, he's talking about the one true God and there's only one God. When you think about the universe as God, is that just a singular God that encapsulates our universe and every universe everywhere? Is it just one God of all life? Because I think that's what he's saying. It's not necessarily the one dude, you know, on that cloud right there. It's, it's I think the whole point here. And the, the entire concept of God with the capital G-O-D here or in the Freemasonic grand architect of the universe mm -hmm. or any way you want to ascribe it. If you're talking about a monotheistic God, I think that's kind of the important aspect of it because it's saying that everything comes and returns to one single source. And if you can agree on that one standard, I think that's almost this ineffable name that he talks about, this spark that was lost. It's that idea that everything comes from and returns to a single, you know, center point, essentially. Yeah, that's what the Pythagoreans were all about with the monad, the one, Plato, emanationism, mm -hmm. right? The the one in the center, and he emanates and creates reality from those emanations, and every single different en emanation is a different reality, perhaps, right? So that, uh, yeah, and, and I agree with you 100%. Maybe it is a group of entities or... It is that one at the center, which rules everything. And that's where I stand. I think it's that one at the center. That is well, what do you mean when you say group of entities? That interests me. The, so maybe it's a collective effort, right? Because, and, and I'm referring to the Anunnaki or in the book of Genesis, they have become like one of us. So, so let's just say it was the Anunnaki, right? Mm -hmm. But wouldn't the Anunnaki then have their own single source from where they came? Or yeah, do you Anu. think they all just sprung into 
Right. So so even then, there's still a mm -hmm. single source. That's what I'm saying. It's a collective. So you have, and that's what the Holy Trinity is, right? You have the fa the the Father, God, the Holy Spirit, and then you have uh, the 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 Holy Spirit and the, the Son, Son, right? Yeah. So you have this Trinity, where again, it's a collective. It's a collective, but and that's the most confusing part about Christianity and the Holy Trinity that people, some people can't wrap their mind around. They're like, wait, so he's God, but then he's his own son. But then well, a lot of, I mean, at least I was raised, um, you know, listening to a lot of this stuff, literal. And I guess being a Roman Catholic, I was always taught that the Roman Catholics believe the most of of the Bible, literally. Like they're supposed to believe in talking snakes and the the huge ark and everything. <laughs> so if you look at it from that standpoint and try to read it rationally it's very hard to um but like i think in as hall says somewhere in this book he mentions very explicitly that you know none of this had like the sacrifices in the bible and the, the animal sacrifices none of it was um meant to mean actual sacrifices these were supposed to be like celestial passages and almost how you know humans would pass through the different parts of time mm-hmm mm -hmm. scam callers always <laughs> So then he, he gets into Orpheus, right, uh, playing upon the seven-string lyre of his own being, the music of the spheres, right? Shout out to Pythagoras. And then Hermes, he talks about Hermes, he talks about Krishna, he talks about these different, Buddha, he talks about these different figures that have... Messengers, he, he kind of refers to yeah. them as messengers, kind of passing this light around. But this made me think of helena blavatsky where the ascended masters right yeah yeah 100 because that's what she yeah. was all about about these ascended yeah, masters. i mean to me it's it's sort of the same idea as just enlightenment that if you become enlightened to a certain point you kind of escape the wheel of karma mm -hmm. and you go to this higher place where you can kind of see down on everyone or you die and you go to heaven and you look down on everyone because you you know you made it through the trials and tribulations as a good person and there's a million versions of this but I, in my mind they're all kind of describing this exact same thing the ascended master is someone that essentially became enlightened he, he even brings king author into this and this one line here there is but one religion in all the world and that is the worship of god the spiritual flame of the universe under many names he is known in all lands but and then he gets into some other god here he is the name of the creator of the universe and the fire is his universal symbol so you think that the cavemen back then that discovered fire thought it was from a god Right, the Neanderthals. He might have been right. You know what I mean? Because that's what—that's pretty much what I'm getting from the like, like the the symbology behind the flame, like fire, which is like the main, the the first thing that that man, right, that 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 uh, pushed man forward in his development, right? Because they say that when we started to be able to cook meat, when we discovered fire we were able to, our, our brains were able to expand because we were able to get more nourishment from the And we the could food. start moving around and, and mm -hmm. set up, you know, camps in various places, yeah. But I, if you're going by what uh, Hall is saying in this book, Initiates of the Flame, essentially them creating that fire was them bringing God closer to them because the, the fire from the sun and the material fire and the spiritual fire, it's almost just like looking at the the same thing through a prism, you know, looking mm -hmm. at it through many different lenses. It's that fire's there, but there's a material aspect and a spiritual aspect and uh, many other aspects to it. Let us find this flame and also serve it. 
realizing that it is in all created things that all are one because all are part of that eternal flame, the fire of spirit, the life and the power of the universe. And then now, now be honest, if, if you just walked into like a, like a community center or something and they, <laughs> they were having like a get together and you heard them uh, reading this out loud, it would sound like a cult, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, I'd be like, what the fuck? Right? I'd be like, what the fuck's going on here? You know what I mean? But is this the type of stuff that, do you know any Freemasons? I, I know some, yeah. Is this the type of stuff that they talk about? What do they, what do they do in those things, bro? So, so I'm a 32nd degree Freemason, which sounds so much more impressive than it is. Wait, what? Um, all, all anyone is, is really a, a third degree Mason. And everything after that is, is lateral. But to answer your question, yeah, absolutely. Wait, um, Thomas, you're a Freemason. Yeah, you know, you knew this. Off, no, I didn't. Of, you didn't know this? No. You fuck. I knew yeah, there was I'm... something about you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've been a Freemason for, I think, 15 years now, maybe a little bit longer. So, um, and honestly, I'm not going to get into the whole long story of it. It was mostly a, a curiosity factor, and I found out my grandpa was a Freemason, and I had been wearing his... Uh, Freemason ring for years without even knowing what it was until someone approached me and and told me um, but but to answer your question without going down that whole rabbit hole yeah absolutely this is the kind of thing that Freemasons talk about but but more specifically this is kind of if you were in the the early 20th century or the, or the late 19th century and you were interested in this kind of thing that was like the only place that you could go and know that you'd find a whole bunch of people that were also interested in such a very niche uh, topic, especially if you consider that, you know, people were dealing with like typhoid and cholera and just, you know, mm. living past the age of 30, the luxury of being able to go and talk about the oneness of the universe and all of these different cultures across the world. It was afforded to very few people. Um, and this was one of those places. It had many purposes, but this is the exact kind of content that, you know, they'd be interested in talking about and discussing. So you'd find like-minded people that you know we're all about this that that's interesting thomas and and i didn't know that about you and i and i've only i've had only that i know of one other freemason on we didn't talk about freemasonry i found out after the fact but then here i am and then you fucking drop this bomb this, this hammer on me and i'm like what the fuck you're marked now so what i apologize yeah you're marked now you might have some secret knowledge so. yeah dude fucking the flame dog so <laughs> One thing that stood out to me, uh, he says this in the book, upon the altar of this flame, to the true creator of this book, the writer offers it and dedicates it to be the one fire which blazes forth from God and is now hidden within each living thing. I mean, that's the Big Bang, essentially. Yeah, if you well, take it from a very physical, you know, cosmological standpoint. Do you, do you think that's like, do you think the, I don't like the big bang theory, bro. I think it's no. stupid. No, I think it's stupid. I think it's, and really, I, th I think it aligns very closely to this entire book though. You think so? You think that one that with big bang happened, everything was put out in time and every, all the knowledge that was going to go out is already out there. And just, just from this big explosion, just boom, everything was just set into place. I mean, it, in an oversimplified way, yeah, I think it's a really elegant sort of theory and concept. Like, I can't remember the full, I'll probably mispronounce it, but the, like, the the Kybelion, the Kybelion. Mm -hmm, the Kybelion, uh, yeah. 
Balian. Mm-hmm. Um, they, I think that describes this concept very, very well, where you almost have this absolute purity um, and knowledge, but it sort of has to break itself apart and then return back to its initial state. And that, that whole experience is the concept of, of God because it's, it's introducing this negative space into what was just pure light mm-hmm. because you can't have pure light without darkness, right? You can't have um, Jesus without Lucifer and vice versa. You have to have these, this polarity. And once you introduce just the concept of polarity, it kind of takes over and chaos and entropy, but essentially that starts to weed itself out. And that's when you go through this calcification purification phase. And that's when you're supposed to kind of be returning back to this ball of light, this, you know, this big bang that you started from, it kind of collapses back into itself. I don't know if I believe that that's actually how the the laws of nature and and how reality works, but as a concept, I think it's it's really elegant and it's a it's a nice metaphor. You know, when you're talking about poetry, right? If you think about it as a poem, it's it's a really nice way of considering it all. Yeah, and a lot of times, bro, like my nihilistic side comes out, and I go, "What if none of that shit ever happened? What if if?" Right, because they they throw out these crazy figures. So, well, I've got a good I've got a good response to nihilism because I felt like I was a nihilistic for a while myself until I came across this one great question, and it was either in the the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads. But this guy's you know conversing with uh, Vishnu or, or one of the gods, mm-hmm. and he's kind of proposing this idea of atheism and nihilism, and the god respond. I'm I'm hatching this up, but he kind of responds something of. Well, if this is all true and everything is rational and, and things, you know, only be start in motion because something else put it in motion, mm-hmm. then why is there something rather than nothing? Because just the concept of just pure emptiness and nothingness and perfect stillness is the most rational explanation and the most rational state for anything to be in. The fact that anything's moving by its accord or something else's accord in itself is, you know, like bad word but like a miracle almost you know it's yeah like why does why does this thing even exist at all why does light or fire exist why does that movement exist versus just complete stillness and nothingness because stillness and nothingness makes a whole lot more sense than whatever the hell fire is yeah 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 and and, and i mean i and i say that because again I, I look at things from different points of views but sometimes when i'm reading all this shit and they're throwing out all these big ass numbers of like 13 billion years ago or the universe is constantly expanding at a rate of how many billion, Oh, there's, there's a great video of like how small are we and it sh- and it shows you like the size of us in the universe and then the universe within like the bigger galaxy and then like all these micro galaxies and by the time you zoom out you realize how inconsequential of you know not even a, a millionth of a grain of sand it's it's not even that significant yeah, we're trying to figure out like what to eat for lunch and we're just like this speck of shit like on the bottom of the shoes of the <laughs> the universe and then we're just you know what I mean like we 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 cloud ourselves and 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 you know immerse ourselves in this materialistic aspect of everything and we if we really look at it bro if if we go back to the beginning of time we live such a short time span compared to everything else that's happened right and I I think about like what sort of what sort of impact I'm leaving on the world today? Or are they going to be, you, you know what I mean? He makes a really good reference in, in this book. I think it was towards the end of it when he's getting into ancient Egypt and he likens this analogy to the Great Pyramid that mm-hmm. from, from far away or even from space, it looks like a single perfectly formed rock, like one single unit of a rock. 
And mm-hmm. if you get if you get in closer and you inspect it, you realize, oh, it's not one object. It's actually one huge object made of many little objects. The stones on the, this, on the pyramid. Yeah, the, the stones that actually make up the pyramid make mm-hmm. up this bigger pyramid. And the pyramid itself looks like just one single rock, but it's made of little tiny rocks. And that this metaphor, again, was um, sort of what you're talking about, that, yeah, you might be very inconsequential, but with enough focus and some sort of direction and the knowledge of this ineffable, you know, flame that you can come together with many other rocks and create this longer lasting, more impressive thing that has its own shape that almost becomes its own thing outside of, you know, the, the combination of the parts. Yeah. He calls it man as a unit, right? It represents man as a unit. He always says yeah, that yeah, too absolutely. in his lectures as a unit. I love listening to his lectures. The main, what, so we're getting here into, the forward and right from the forward, I have something that, that I'm very passionate about that stood out to me immediately. And then it says the cube altar and of the elements of the earth. It is the altar composed. It is the great cube of matter. The all spark, right? We have the all spark. We have all this crazy symbolism with the cube on or in this altar burns a flame. It it is this flame. That is the spirit of all created things. Man, know thyself. Thou art the flame, and thy bodies are the living altars. And I've always heard this growing up being Pentecostal Christian, right? Our bodies are the temple of God, and don't 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 get tattoos because you're defacing the temple of God and all that shit. And then here he comes but and you can dance with snakes, that's fine. Yeah, but you can fucking practice black <laughs> magic and turn yeah. So the first chapter, the fire union upon the altar, and I, I, I highlighted here, it is well for us to understand that we ourselves are the cube altar upon which upon which and in which burns the altar fire. And the ever-burning lamp, know that the flame that burns within thee and the light thy way is the ever-burning lamp of the ancients. As this lamp were fed by the purest of oil, so thy spiritual flame must be fed by life of purity and altruism. And I've heard that word before. I don't know what the fuck it means. I should have probably looked it up. Altruism is essentially uh, doing good just for the sake of doing good. Mm. There's no inherent benefit to yourself. You know, feeding the poor and donating money and charity. That's essentially this concept of altruism. We've lost touch with that, right? In today's society, everybody does everything for likes and shit. When people are feeding the homeless, they record themselves, post it on TikTok. <laughs> doing it for the gram. Do it, yeah. yeah, doing it for the gram, right? Doing it for the likes. And, and setting up Kickstarters, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like if you're gonna do something from the pure from the you know, from the purest of your heart, you know, from from deep down inside, you should just do it without any how you set any repercussions or any any expectations after the fact. Yeah, like the, the modern day version of that would be like a hundred percent anonymous donation or something, without yeah. a tax write off associated yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we always do this. And again, he was only twenty two or twenty one when he was writing this. And I wonder sometimes, bro, where he got this information from. Where the fuck did he find the time? Thomas, to, to look all this stuff up and interpret all these things. He didn't have the gram, man. He didn't he didn't have a Reddit and YouTube and, and Spotify and Steam and everything else, you know, pulling his attention. I I don't know if he was the most popular guy at the time. He might not have been, you know, raging at the parties, but I I really feel that he just kind of found his knack. Like he opened up the first book. I would love to learn more about his early life, but I just assumed that 
um, this material just clicked with them and it was just such a profound sort of experience. I mean, same thing with you, right? Like why, why do you gravitate towards this versus a million other interests that you could have taken up? Um, and I think he's kind of mentioning in this book, I don't know this for a fact and I might be way off, but when he, when he talks about this, he who lives the life shall know the doctrine. To me, this is essentially like, um, real recognize real is kind of yeah. like the, the rapper version of it. Right. But, um, I can just tell by the way, the things that you talk about and the way that you carry yourself. And if I notice that you've got this altruism in you where you just genuinely are, you know, sending out positive vibes or whatever, and not for the gram, but, um, if, if you can recognize that in someone that may or may not be that ineffable name of God and that, you know, unspeakable, um, un unquenchable flame that might be that, that same sort of idea of, you know, I can, I can recognize it without saying it because it doesn't have a name to it. Yeah. One of the reviews that stood out to me when I was reading this book, I looked up different reviews and stuff. One of the, one of the reviews that stood out to me was five stars. If you're reading this, you're already an initiate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I a hundred percent believe that too. Yeah. So and again, and I don't know if you notice on, on the very first page, um, opposite the title page, it's got this little flask that says multiplication on it. Yeah. Um, yeah. What right, is that? Right next to where it says some multiplication is an alchemical concept and you're all in the philosopher's stone. So multiplication is raising the potency of your philosopher's stone. Mm. It's, um, all the work that you're putting in to sort of concentrate its power that is specifically known as alchemical multiplication. That is enhancing the, the power of your personal philosopher's stone. Interesting. Yeah, and, and what I was going to mention next was how he sets us up, right? He talks about this ever-burning lamp, and he sets us up for later down in, in the other, the philosopher's stone story, where he talks about the alchemist, the great alchemist that everybody laughed at him, and we'll get to that. But So the ever-burning lamp of the alchemist, it represents the spinal column of man at the top of which is a flickering, a little blue and red flame as the lamp of the ancients was fed and kept burning by the purest of olive oil. So man is transmitting himself and cleansing in the laver of purification, the life essences, which when turned upward provide fuel for the ever burning lamp within himself. Again, very poetic. And he breaks it. He tells you it represents this. If it would have been anybody else, brother, would have been like, yeah, this is the lamp. And you're like, what the fuck is it? Is it Aladdin? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, everyone else would have been like, and then buy volume two to find the real <laughs> find out on the next that's episode. That, that's how that worked. Yeah. A Dragon Ball C. And then here we go, bro. Uh, this is something you might know about the the Masonic censor. What, what what does that represent, bro? <laughs> I had to look this up because I I didn't know this either. Honestly, <laughs> I it, people assume that you just like know the secrets and you know the background of all this stuff just because you you know you signed up to a club. Can you talk about I, it though, dude? Like, can you talk about like if you're you, in? What do you want to know? I mean, like if you're in a Masonic congregation or whatever i'm not supposed to tell you any of of the specific o's or any of like the specific information that's given to me inside of the lodge but to be honest that like all of that was so much more relevant before there was an internet <laughs> at this point you could be like all right fine you can't tell me and then immediately google it and find anything that you want to know and you also realize over time that there's there's some standards but not everyone even believes the same things everyone interprets it in their own ways different it's, denominations it would be like it would be like yeah denominations almost but it's 
it's a lot messier than the denominations of of religion essentially but but going back to um this masonic censer this was kind of new to me and essentially it's um it's like a bowl that you would burn incense in and if you look at some of the the masonic kind of rituals especially in scottish right where they include this it's very prominent, but I never really knew exactly what it was supposed to stand for. And, and Manly Palmer Hall breaks it down very simply here. It represents that you can light, you know, if you've got a, a big pile of incense or any kind of incense, all it takes is the tiniest little spark and this tiny little ember. And if you just let it burn through, it'll burn through all of that incense, all that material until it's completely gone. And this was this this concept of that Promethean fire, this like spark of inspiration or just spark of whatever like once it that sparks in you if you if you keep it you know that ember burning you can keep it going forever and it'll burn through anything that you can kind of put in front of it that's sort of the analogy here yeah and and that reminds me of the movie prometheus right where they kickstart the life right he drinks the black goo and then he falls into the water and from his dna him dissolving right coagulate and is it coagulate to dissolve right baphomet the op- coagulates the opposite coagulates yeah. when when it, it comes together and hardens yeah but the 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 duality right so coagulate and dissolve yeah. or whatever and and when he dissolves yeah, right. in the water and from that stems life so they're going again back to the creation creation myth where it's these beings right but then he the, that that seed he's talking about it being the flame right this like you said the ember from the ember comes the flame and from there everything else it comes to be and it's again it, it kind of makes sense the way that he describes it with that analogy and um like i guess technically that would be him revealing the mysteries that you're not supposed to reveal but again he was he knew this before he even ran into freemasons he just knew what all this symbolism meant because he read about it in other cultures and for whatever however he was able to do it he read that and was like oh i know what that means almost inherently at some point how fucking wild is that, bro? That like he can he he knew about all that. that's that still fucking blows me away. I still I always say that he's like the Tesla of esoteric knowledge. Like, you know, Tesla could look at like a electrical reaction and just kind of understand, like saw all the machinations at work and the gears in his head were turning. I feel like Hall was the exact same thing, but you put like a religious text in front of him and he kind of sees that same that same machinations at work. Imagine how it must have been. I, I I tried reaching out to this lady that studied with him for seven years, but she never got back to me. And I, I, I would... The, the Philosophical Research Society, right? Yeah, I would love to... Yeah, in California, I would love to pick her brain to see what it was like to be around this man, right? To be around him. He was he was at her wedding at one point. So imagine how maybe how close she was to him. and But she never got back to me, so that's fine. We have here the grave digger spade. Let us take the spade that now digs our grave through the passions and emotions of life and use it to unearth the secret room far below the rubbish of the fallen temple of the human soul. And then it got into you sent me this 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 part, the the cards, right? And how every card symbolizes this is the one that I latched on to. I, I love like the history of playing cards and how they're um, linked to tarot cards and how um, outside of the the tarot card link, there's all this other hidden symbolism within the cards themselves. Uh, and, he, and he talks about some of this. I, I made a note here, but he mentions that the spade suit is the only one where all of the characters are not facing it. They're all facing away. Um, and that's because oh. the... I don't, know, I don't know if you noticed that. 
But yeah, no, I did read that, but I didn't understand it. That all the other suits are are facing, but when you get to the spades, they're not facing, and the spade jumping around a little bit because Manly uh, keeps jumping back to this idea of the spade and um, of like the Pharaoh's hat and all of these different shapes that take form, and it all has to do with the sacrum bone. And he mentions this is kind of like the base of your spine, the the lowest chakra essentially. And I think he he mentions Kundalini. I don't think he mentions chakras, but he mentions that, that Kundalini um, being that the spade is really the bone that's at the base of your spine, and it represents like the most base, lower version of your energy and consciousness. And this is perhaps why it's also recognized as death, because it's essentially like a spiritual death. If, you're, if your fire always stays at the very bottom and never rises up, it's essentially a dead flame. Oh. And that this sacrum bone represents that lower energy, and that when you invert it, it becomes the spade of, on a deck of cards and the spade of a, you know, a, a grave digger, and that it all represents the same idea of, of a spiritual death. Yeah, you see, and you see how they put that into, like the mainstream. Like the, everybody at one point in their fucking life has played cards, and you use this, and it's like the game of chess too, right? That's the symbolic meanings behind everything, but we play it just because, right? Because well, I would I would argue that it's stood the test of time because it has these deeper archetypes baked into it. If it if it didn't, then it would just kind of come and go. That's that's a personal uh, opinion. I don't have anything to back that up, but I I really do feel that things that stand the test of time, they stand that test of time for a reason. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. Because again, they have a significance, right? They have some sort of uh, perhaps intrinsic value that they bring forth. And like how you said in chess, right? You have the duality, the black and white, and it's a game to be able to overtake your opponent. And I think I think we are in this cosmic game of chess at the moment where you know when the pawn gets to the other side you can be upgraded right so we're all little pawns in this game and we're trying to upgrade ourselves into a queen or or something else right to to be able to high to to elevate your consciousness if you will into that next level and but yeah again very beautiful and i didn't know about this this symbol of death and uh, when something is sacred they they're basing it off of this idea the the lower shocker right the the gooch area of you will right that's what yeah, the, the sacrum bone yeah exactly. your sack you know what i mean like fucking balls. <laughs> <laughs> and and he goes on to say this too which kind of blew my mind a little bit but um he mentions that the origin of like the freemasonic white apron um dates back to the ancient egyptians usage of this which is fairly commonly known if, if you look into it it's not like a huge secret but that the Egyptian usage of this was essentially the the lambskin was this white, the absolute purest thing they could think of, and that if you are tying it around your waist as an apron, it's now using that purity to sign up to sort of counteract um, that that lowest level of energy that might be emitting from your sacrum bone. So, like the apron itself was a way to to kind of like prevent your negative energy from getting out and, you know, in a very simplified way and help you focus on raising your consciousness. Do you have a little apron, Thomas? I didn't get mine, man. I didn't get mine that day. No, you didn't. You got to pay for it. And yeah, for whatever reason, I I didn't get it and I didn't push the, the matter. I mean, you can order them online or whatever. It's not a big deal. 
And honestly, you go to a lodge, you don't have an apron. They just give you one. You don't have to. You kind of look like a weirdo if you, like, put on, like, a big fancy one because everyone's wearing, like, the disposable ones. Really? Dude, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're going to have to talk. I, I, I don't know. I don't want to push the, the matter, but I still can't believe that you're a fucking Freemason. You didn't I could have sworn it's, it's come up before, so I'm, so I'm surprised that, that you didn't know that. No, I didn't. I didn't. I just literally found out. So we have here the candle. And this signifies for this light is the life of our brother creature. Uh, the, the candle is is candle that is hidden under the bushel. This is the true light that forever dispels the darkness of ignorance and uncertainty. Let the light shine forth through a purified body and balanced mind. So again, we have this, this purification, right? This, this alchemical, he literally says that our bodies are the, the mad scientists laboratory, right? He, when, when we, when later on, when he breaks down and again, the purification of different metals. You say all. mad scientist, but yeah, he says the, the scientist laboratory. I like this. Bro. You, you spice it up a little bit. <laughs> when I was reading this and it was like the alchemist in his little cave, right? In the darkness when he's in there and with his little lamp. He paints a great picture. Bro, that was me last night in my fucking room, right? In my studies. <laughs> I am the alchemist. We are alchemists fucking preaching and talking about this shit. So in a sense, I could re like that resonated so much with me when I was reading that. And I don't know if it's because I was fucking stoned to the gills, but I was like, bro, I was audibly like saying like, Whoa. well, I got I to know here that specific on that because I. Again, one of my absolute favorite things about Manly Palmer Hall is how he writes to as a normal person, and he doesn't try to dress everything up in, in this like very flourished, um, you know, rhetoric, making everything sound over important. HP Lovecraft. <laughs> so yeah, he doesn't he doesn't really get into that, even though it, it is kind of like poetry. But he he mentions this somewhere halfway through the book, and he says, "The modern alchemist thus has an opportunity that his ancient brother never had." Don't get into that. I want to get into that later, Thomas. Oh, I can't steal the thunder from this? <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> well, I mean, you brought up the modern alchemist. Okay. I know, but I, I, I want to just, when we get to I want to talk about because that was my favorite part of this book. So <laughs> I won't steal the thunder then. I won't so steal the fire. we have here again, H.B. Blavatsky, Chapter 2, The Sacred C City of Shambhala. And I'm one that likes to talk about hollow earth, right? So you have Shambhala. You have I, love, I love hollow earth. I don't... <laughs> You have Agartha, right? You have these places of higher consciousness. And he talks about every mythology and legendary religion of the world. There is that one spot that is sacred above all others for Christians is heaven. For the, he, says, he talks about the, the Norsemen. It was Valhalla, right? The city of the slain. And from that same, from their slain brothers, that's what it was built upon, right? He says it's uh, built of the spears of heroes and they're able to kill wild boar and, and they're regenerated every single day. Uh, we have, uh, he talks about the rainbow bridge, right? And, and this is North Norse mythology yeah. where you he have, crossed, yeah. yeah, you have, you have the, you have movies about, right? Marvel fucking makes movies about this stuff. The, the rainbow bridge and all the shit that gaps the, this world to the next. And I think that again, Heavy, heavy influence from Helena Blavatsky because she was real big on that whole Shambhala stuff where it's this place. Well, so well, she was one of the first ones to start, you know, translating all of these ancient texts and and kind of indexing them in a way and putting them together in, you know, single volumes. It's hard to read, though, bro. 
I mean, it was a long time ago. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's very hard to read. That's why I can't. Re- that's why I've never. That's what I love about. Uh, we'll, we'll get into. I mean, this is the occult book club, so we're gonna have to hit up Secret Doctrine at some point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we have here the he t- uh, one of the things that stood out to me. Science now knows that not only does the Earth have two motions, that of rotation upon its axis and revolution around the sun. But that it has nine other motions. Oh, and I wanted to get into this, but I want to talk to you about this. According to Flammarion, the French yeah, astronomer, yeah. right? And we have the Flammarion engraving where it shows this this wizard or alchemist that's stepping outside. And I'm sure if you see, if people who are listening see it, look up Flammarion engraving. It's this this alchemical uh, uh, engraving where it shows this this person stepping out right maybe it was the dmt realm or some shit right we had the dome (laughs) and you have on the other side where he sees like celestial bodies there's a there's a depiction of an angel that ezekiel saw you can relate that to that so again this veil he's piercing the veil into this area of perhaps higher consciousness that we're not able to see in in this point in time and he goes on to say one of these motions is that the alternation of the poles in other words someday that part of earth's surface which is now the north pole will become the south pole therefore it is said that the sacred city has left its central position and after much wandering is now located in mongolia mongolia where i believe that's where hp Blavatsky said that she went right or that she said she yeah, went I mean, in the rough area of like of what we would call tibet yeah but then people were saying oh she never went there she was full of shit but then uh, some political figure later on came back and said, "Oh yeah, she was actually here," because she says that she was. You know, I mean, I mean t- to me, I don't. I really don't care if she physically went there. Essentially, her story is that she got information that started there and somehow brought it to the rest of the world. If if she fucking caught a ride there, or if she <laughs> paid some sherpa to grab it for her and bring it back like Uber, I don't think that really matters as much in, in her story. You know, as long as she's not leading people up fucking K two like Crowley. <laughs> Yeah, dude. So he 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 talks. He mentions Jacob's ladder, and he said the way that leads to heaven is upward and inward. Now the Bible says that God is within all of us, right? But then you are you are forced to go somewhere to worship Him, and it's almost like well, so, the Bible doesn't say that part. That's just the part that came after. <laughs> That's what I was raised, right? Like God is within, within. If you look deep, like this, it. What gets me is where the fuck is he? Is he inside of me? Am am I made in the image of God? I I thought we talked about this before too. You ever read the Gospel of Thomas? Yes. It's very short, but it's essentially it's like turn up any stone, I am there, and it also brings about this concept of one single person just praying by themselves, that can be your church. It doesn't have to yeah. be a building. It doesn't have to be even more than one person. It can just be a single person by themselves, you know, li- lifting up rocks. That could be you at church. Yeah, but I, w- I was always raised raised with, oh, you have to go here. You have to congregate. You have to give your oh, tithing. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, Roman Catholic, it was like, you're not even uh, you're not even talking to God unless you, you got to stand. All right, now kneel. Now stand again. Now kneel. Now go and drink uh, the wine. Now go and do like it's it's very rigid and structured. It's like where where's God in all this? So yeah, that's what gets me. Is he in heaven? Is he in me? Is he in the universe? Where the fuck is he at? You know what I mean? So that that's what gets. That's why I say that. Like in that's why it resonates with me because I'm on that. You know what I mean? We're, this is what we're all about. We're fucking looking for the answers to 
to shit that we're probably never going to know, Thomas. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, not until you're dead. Not until you're dead. But even my dad died four times and he didn't see shit. So who the fuck knows if, you know what I mean? Like, what do you think happens mm-hmm. when you die, bro? What, what, what do you, where do you stand with that? I kind of I kind of think, and I don't know how the best to describe it in a really simple term, but I think me and you are the same person right now. It's just that the energy jumps into you and it lives life as one. Whoa. And then a fraction of a millisecond later, it's in me. And I don't have any recollection of anything that you thought because you're in your body and I'm in my body. But it's just this this single light source that's just jumping around to everything constantly all at the same time. And we're all sort of uh, exhibiting just our own expressions of this exact same flame, essentially. So I, I don't really think there's a die. It's just that that flame no longer jumps into this physical body. And instead it skips this body and it goes to the next one a little bit faster. God, that was deep, bro. That was fucking super, <laughs> <laughs> that was super deep. So, we have the lotus. May your consciousness be lifted upward to the tree of life within yourself until in the brain it blossoms forth as the lotus that rising from the darkness of the lower world lifts its flower to catch the rays of the sun. So again, he is talking about the opening of the flower is the opening of your consciousness. That's the way I took it, right? The, the, the expansion. He, he likens this to the, the rose of the, the Rosicrucians. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's it's opening, it's this blossoming of knowledge. And I think there's also this concept of, again, like that kundalini energy coming from the very base of the spine and raising all the way to the top until it brings upon some sort of form of enlightenment. And that, again, is this flower blooming. Yeah, and I've had, I don't know if you've ever heard of Shane Moore. I've had him on, and we talked about the crucifixion allegory, and he breaks down how the body, right, almost how Manly P. Hall is talking about here, is God, right? The 33 years of God, the 33 vertebrae, the spinal f- fluid inside your spine is the the waters of the river of, I think it's Jordan or something like that. And it, it washes out into the sacrum and he relates everything. He shows pictures of the brain, how it looks, you know, be, I think Manly P. Hall talks about it in this book where it, sh- it shows, right? The, the, he says between the two cherubims, right? The the, the and again, I'm. Oh, he's talking about the the frontal sinus that's like up here, where essentially you'd, you'd be referring to like the pineal gland, yes, the pineal the third gland. Eye. If you went a little bit deeper into the brain itself, that's kind of where the pineal gland would be. Yeah, and he talks about the frontal sinus, right? The spreading of the bone between the eyes. So, I'm glad you brought this one up because this is this is where. Um, his like enigmatic personality comes out in a way because he almost explicitly says here that the, the spirit or what we know as the spirit, like literally lives in that frontal sinus cavity uh, in so many words. I don't, I don't have the exact uh, quote. I can read it. I have it here. So yeah, yeah, read, read the quote. In the spreading of the bone between the eyes called the frontal sinus is the seat of the divine in man. There in a particular, there in a peculiar Gaseous material floats or rather exists or is the fine essence, which we know as the spirit. Fuck. So, so this is one of those times when he's sounds pretty explicit and he's got a little diagram and it shows you exactly where he's talking about, but it's, it's really hard for me to read this and think that he truly is talking in a medical sense that if you were to, you know, take a, um, like a knife and open that little section up that you'd see this gaseous material or something. Like, I, I just don't believe that 
that's what he's saying here, but it's it's kind of what he's writing. So that I don't know how to interpret that right off the top of my head. It, it kind of stuck out really strong to me in this book. Yeah, it did for me too. I was like, what the fuck? And, and maybe is there a correlation you think of like people who get lumbotomies where they literally stick it up to that area of the brain, right? To, to fix people and, and heal them, right? Do you think there's a connection there where... Again, even the- Maybe, well, that's that's not necessarily the most straightforward way to get a lobotomy. I mean, there was a lot of different ways to get lobotomies that were pretty fucking gnarly, um, and they didn't always necessarily go right through the the sinus. So, I mean, oh. they had ocular lobotomies where they would like go through your oh, eye. Yeah. There was a lot where they would just kind of screw like right into the side of your head with like a big fucking like out of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon, like a big screw. And I mean. Honestly, a lot of that lobotomization was just fucking poking sticks at things to see what would happen, you know? What fucking barbarians, bro? Like, just drilling on the side of your fucking hey, head. I mean, we can get into the MK Ultra and, and Adrenochrome talks now if you want, because that's that's where essentially a lot of this... Uh, and, and actually, on a really crazy tangent here, but the, the Scottish Rite um, heavily funded Alzheimer's research and a lot of, like, mental health research... Uh, in like the early 20th century and in, in late 19th century. And it was specifically because they did believe that there was some kind of capacity and, and, you know, the, the mind that might've had this ability to trace the divine or something. So they, they were like putting all their funding into this kind of research. So it's, it's not completely unheard of to assume that there might have been a belief in Manly P Hall and people in his time period that, there was like a, a physical medical connection with the divine somehow. I don't know. Well, that's what that's what that's what science is, though, right? They're trying to bridge that 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 the metaphysical with the physical. They're trying to bridge that together, right? I think that's always been something that man has been trying to explain, like what is the soul, what is consciousness, and I think it contributes to that. And in this point in time, bro, I mean, given the the circumstances, technology at the time, and all this stuff. There really wasn't much that they could go by. And it fucking blows my mind that he was able to find, bro, he was literally reading books. He had to read. He had to read and take notes on all this shit in order to, to extract the information. And when he extracted the information, bro, I mean, you, you've, you've heard his lectures. He, he recites it perfectly. You know what I mean? They well, not just that, but he can, he can organize the information in a way that Blavatsky and Albert Pike never could. I mean, both of them were able to convey this massive, dense amount of information, but they would do it in this very like nonlinear way where it was almost like stream of consciousness writing, where they start writing about one thing, like like reading a conspiracy theory almost, right? Like it starts on one topic, and then like two paragraphs later, you're on the other side of the world talking about Shambhala, and then like a few <laughs> sentences later, you're on the other side of the world, you know, talking about Valhalla, and, and like there's no correlation but you have to read the entire work and then you can start of like see all the different patterns and the stories they were trying to tell. And that was, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to read those. And it's one of the reasons why it's so easy to read Hall because it, it almost feels like he digested all this material and kind of sat back and was like, all right, how can I make this a lot easier and, you know, easier to explain. And I don't want to say in a dumbed down way, but in a, in a highly simplified way that, any idiot can kind of understand it if they just cared enough to read it. And I think this book kind of represents that. Like if you, if you care enough to just sit down and read it for an hour, you're going to come away with all sorts of mind blowing perspectives. I don't know if you're going to have new information or 
knowledge that's going to help you in day-to-day life, but you'll definitely have new perspectives to kind of reflect on and maybe you won't think about your shitty day at work or, you know, your, your kid that, you know, just like broke your PS5 or something. You'll be thinking about this internal flame. Yeah, no, I, I was left with more questions than answers to be quite honest with you, bro. When I was diving into what kind of questions were sticking out in your mind the most? (sighs) I mean, at the end of the day, I still don't know what the flame is. Is it our spirit? Is it our consciousness? Is it the will to live? Is it the will to keep going? You know what I mean? Like that's I think it's, I think it's all of the above. It's yes to all of the above. It's whatever. Like, again, it's it's that something other than the nothing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, I, I, I did take things from this that I, 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 even on the podcast that I was on yesterday, I was pulling stuff from this book. And I'm like, I don't want to blow my load because I'm doing this tomorrow. But <laughs> boom, here's Manly P. Hall. And we're talk- we were talking about the fucking Transformers movies. You know what I mean? So it's like, wait, what? You know, we're just fucking all over the place. And we connected it how Manly P. Hall does. He has all these different abstract ideas and he's able to convey them in such an efficient manner. But then at the very end, he, he, he catches you up, right? You're like, where the fuck is this? Oh, okay. Now I see where the fuck we're going. So that's what I love about this. And again, I, and it it came across to me too, is very much like a cliff notes, um, sort of book. Like, yeah, like at at no point when you're reading it, do you think he's about to do this crazy deep dive (laughs) and, and unreal it's, it's really like, okay, here's a chapter on this. All right. Now here's a completely different chapter on this other thing. It it would be like something you'd almost like read as like a coffee table book. Mm -hmm. And he talks about the rod that budded. And then there are seven centers within yourself. And that relates to Kundalini and all this stuff, which you develop their spiritual powers shine out as the centers of the fire within your own being. The ancients have taken the flower to symbolize these centers, which they shine out that the dead stick cut from the tree of life has budded. So again, we have this Kabbalistic sort of, uh, uh, and then they relate to the Lotus, right? So again, I took that as where this rod that the, the cuts, but the number seven has symbolism too. And, these cuts are again the expansion of our consciousness into different paths. Perhaps I don't know. That's you know what the tree of life was all about. They said it's it's a a map to the galaxy or all this other shit. And that's the way I took this. The rod that budded and it's literally a, a, a stick, and you know little buds are coming out of it. And I think that again, as we develop in our spiritual life or whatever, these buds will continue to grow and we will become this the tree of life. Right. That's that's the the tree of knowledge, too. Right. The, 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 this this forbidden. It's, fruit. it's almost like the inversion of that concept of the the incense burning, where instead of you got this ember that's burning through the incense, you've got this seed that sprouts and spreads out through. It's again, like to me, like when you're asking all these different concepts to me that that tree sprouting and turning into a bigger tree and that ember burning through the incense is that same sort of upward force. It's mm-hmm. that same like life almost yeah 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 and we can get into right now the 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 philosopher's stone thomas this is my this is my favorite part of the entire book and it starts off this is chapter three we have the philosopher's stone this is the true stone of the philosopher which gives him power over all created things this stone is himself the experiences of his evolution have cut and polished the rough stone until the initiate until in the initiate it reflects the light of creation from a thousand different facets. And you said, would you say earlier the kaleidoscope? 
Uh, I think that kind of relates, right? The different facets, a thousand different facets. and, and Yeah, seeing it through many different lenses. And, and uh, this is also like a highly Masonic aspect of this uh, perfect ashlar stone that's been created by chipping away at, you know, a, a rougher um, starting stone. My guest last night related this to circumcision, right? The chipping away at the stone he related it to circumcision because, again, there's a whole fucking religion that they're all about that shit, right? Because they think it's impure or... or did, did we talk about this on The Message? Uh, no, we, we talked about this uh, personally over over DMs or something. I think it was over DM. You were talking about it and you said it was like <laughs> yeah. the ring holding back. So, I mean, I, I don't... Uh, there's a million ways to interpret it. And the one that I always found the most fascinating, and I don't remember the source, was that the circumcision represents cutting off this ring from the male energy and this this ring this hole literally represents something that is now missing it's a hole in that the masculine energy and that later on in life when they find a mate and they become married that marriage is the representation of reuniting um the whole so it's it's sort of like oh. that represents that you are you're only one half of what you could be and that you're only going to regain your other half later on in life and through marriage and that's sort of like the religious aspect of it. But I, I love the, the Ashlar aspect of this, too, of chipping away at it. Oh, that sounds... Usually you just want, like, one clean cut. You don't want to, like, chip away at the foreskin. That sounds like a much <laughs> shittier process. It's like, though, what was it in Breaking Bad when he tries to circumcise himself and he, like, fucking <laughs> botches it up? Just so, just do it, like, a, like, a, like an inch every couple weeks or something. <laughs> yeah. So... We get into the mystery of the alchemist, and I was like, "Where the fuck's he going with this?" When, when, when he, when he brought it up, and this is the one that stood out to me the most. And again, I don't know if it's because I was super fucking high, but I was reading this, and I was like, "Whoa!" You know what I mean? I'm like, "I'm the alchemist in the cave." Right? It's like two in the morning. <laughs> I'm reading deep, this man. shit. <laughs> so. He starts off by saying, there are few very occult students today who have not heard of the alchemists, but there are very few who know anything about the strange men who lived during the Middle Ages and concealed under chemical symbolisms the history of the soul. At a time when to express a religious thought was to court annihilation at the stake or wheel, they labored silently in underground caves and cellars to learn the mysteries of nature which the religious opinions of their day denied them the privilege of doing let us picture the alchemist of old deep in the study of natural lore. And this is me. This is, this is me last night, bro. I was in the, in the, in the, in the study of the natural lore. We find him among the test tubes and retorts of his hidden laboratory around him are massive tomes and books by ancient writers. He is a student of nature's mysteries and has devoted years, lives, maybe to work to the work he loves. His hair has long since grayed with age. By the light of his little lamp, again, the little lamp that, that we talked about at the beginning, he reads slowly and with difficulty the strange symbols on the pages before him. His mind is centered upon one thing, and that is the finding of the philosopher's stone. With all the, the chemicals at his command, their various combinations thoroughly understood, he is laboring with his furnace and his burners to make the base metals to, uh, to make of the base Jesus to make of the base metals the philosopher's gold. At last he finds the key and gives to the world the secrets, the secret of the philosopher's gold and the immortal stone. Salt, 
sulfur, and mercury are the answer to his problem. From them, he the, the holy trinity right there. The, yeah, exactly. The, the 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 atom, right? We have the 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 trinity and the atom too, right? We have the. I got the salt is the earth, the sulfur mm-hmm. is the fire, and mercury is the the mediator of the two, and that's that's kind of like the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, where the yeah. Holy Spirit's mercury, uh, the Father is sulfur, you know that that flame in the air, the God, and then Jesus representing the salt or the earth or that that material manifestation between the two. Yeah, and from them he extracts the elixir of life. With the power that they gave him, he transmutes the base metals into gold. The world laughs at him, but he goes on in silence, really doing the things the world believes impossible. And I was like, when I read this, bro, I was like, so, so beautiful. It's so. He wrote this song about me. Yeah, yeah, he wrote this about me. Like, you know, the synchronicity in there. And the one that really fucking that stood out to me was man has been an alchemist from the time when he first raised himself and with the powers long latent pronounced himself as human. And this is, this is the one that was like, fuck experiences are the chemicals of life, which the philosopher is experimenting with. Nature is the great book whose secrets he seeks to understand through her own wondrous symbolism. His own spiritual flame is the lamp by which he reads. And without this, the printed pages mean nothing to him. His own body is the furnace in which he prepares the philosopher's stone. His senses and organs are the test tubes. The incentive is the flame from the burner. Salt, sulfur, and mercury are the chemicals of his craft. According to the ancient philosophers, salt was the earth. Like you mentioned earlier, sulfur was the fire, which was the spirit. And Mercury was nothing, only a messenger like the wing Hermes of the Greeks. His color is purple, da-da-da. And the alchemist realizes that he himself is the philosopher's stone and that this stone is made diamond-like when the salt and the sulfur or the spirit and the body are united through Mercury, the link of mind. Man is the incarnated principle of the mind as the animal is of emotions. He stands with one foot on the heavens and the other on the earth. His higher being is lifted to the celestial spheres, but the lower man ties him to matter. Now the philosopher building his sacred stone is doing so by harmonizing his spirit and his body. The result is the philosopher's stone. That's that that concept of multiplication right there. Bro, when I read that, I was like, this is fucking crazy. Well, well, he continues. Let me let me continue where you left off there, because because I noted the part that came right after that. Oh, yeah. Which is. Is is Hall bringing it back to modern day to talk to, you know, the, the common person in 1922. And he says, the alchemist of today is not hidden in caves and cellars and studying alone. But he goes on with his work and it's seen that walls are built around him while he's in this world. Like the master of old, he is not of it. And as he goes further in the work, the light of other people's advice and outside helps grow weaker and weaker until finally he stands alone and I'm going to insert some words here, alone in his darkness, and then comes the time when he must use his own lamp and the various experiments which he've carried out will be his guide. And this is sort of um, showing that like you do have to break off and become that hermit and you got to become that that alchemist that's going to be ridiculed and that no one's going to understand what you're saying. But that's essentially part of the process because you can't rely on um, the light and the information from without, you have to kind of rely on what's within. And that's that whole, 
you know, the, the philosopher in the cave with the lamp that's kind of finding his way to the philosopher's stone because he's, he's journeying inward instead of outward. Yeah, and then uh, did you mention this part? As he goes further in his work, the light of others, other people's advice and outside help grows weaker and weaker until he finally stands alone in darkness. I, yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. That that him in the darkness, that's sort of cutting off all the outside influence and cutting off the the you know ridicule and whatnot. And I and before we get too far in this, I have you ever heard of a man named Paracelsus? I think that's how you name pronounce his name. No. Paraclesis or Paraclesis? Maybe Paraclesis sounds familiar. Yeah. So when when he was talking about this alchemist that was wandering around and being ridiculed, I I absolutely think that he's talking in sort of a metaphorical sense of like a journey everyone has to go through. But there was also a real life person that seems to match up so very uniquely with this story, and that's a Paraclesis because he was around in the 16th century and he kind of journeyed from town to town on foot and was somewhat ridiculed and he kind of was this mix mash of alchemy and, and a medical doctor and a philosopher and just like everything all wrapped up in one. But I couldn't shake the feeling that Manly P. Hall was, was making a direct reference to Paracelsus and this, this phrase here where he's talking about that, it, the, the part where he talks about the 1600s specifically, it just, it seemed, um, you know, so coincidental. And, you know, I I took that in two different ways, right? I took it as in how you said earlier, closing out all these other people, right? And I've noticed that in my journey where the more I talk about things with certain people, I've noticed a sense of perhaps envy, right? As I further my, my journey in this, this quest to do I don't know what the fuck. And... That's what I think he's talking about, like closing these people out, the negativeness, right? But then there's the other side of, uh, and I took this from my mushroom trip, of if you get too deep in your studies, you start to close off others from you. You know what I mean? So where do you find that healthy balance of being this alchemist and studying? I think you have to have some kind of social interaction because that's where like none of this knowledge would exist at all without bouncing ideas back and forth and without people passing it down. Um, but I, I also think that on like some symbolic level, it's kind of referencing that like everyone dies alone. Like when you die, you don't get to, you know, you're not going to have all the knowledge and the support of your friends and family around shining on you as you go through that, that kind of final uh, passage. And a lot of arguably a lot of what Western philosophy is about is sort of coming to the terms with death and being accepting of it almost to the point where, you know, it doesn't invoke fear. It invokes this sense of acceptance. And that in some regard is like this level of enlightenment. But I think that there might be some correlation there, what he's talking about here, that, you know, you're going to be at some point, you're going to find yourself on your own journey all by yourself with only the tools that you've gathered for yourself over your lifetime of experiences. And if your entire lifetime of experience is just uh, defined by your interactions with other people and you're not doing any kind of inward searching, then on that final journey, you're just going to be left with a fucking broken flashlight and a and a good luck guy and a pat on the back as opposed to this this lamp that's burning with the pure oil forever and ever that can kind of lead you to where you need to get to. I think, I mean, I, I think that's kind of the, the correlation that he's going for here. Well, while you were talking, I found out the answer to what, what the fuck uh -oh. I was asking. So uh, we have here, again, this is what I love about Manly P. Hall, and I highlighted this, but I didn't talk about it. The pillars of the temple, 
what we're talking about, these two extremes, these pillars symbolize the heart and mind, the positive and the negative poles of life. Those who would enter the temple must pass between the pillars. Every extreme is dangerous. It is the point between all poles that is safe to stand upon. He cannot enter the temple by development of either the heart or mind alone, but only by the equal development of both. So boom, right there. What the fuck are you talking about? You need to focus on both at the same time. And again, beautifully done. And, and this, this entire fucking book resonated with me. And the one, the, 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 the cherry on top that I loved was here. Uh, you left off of where he's on his own, right? And various experiments of carry on. He must take the elixir of life, which he has developed and, and with it, fill the lamp of his spiritual consciousness and holding that above his head, walk into the great unknown where he has been a good and faithful servant. He will learn the alchemy of divinity where now test tubes and bottles are his implements. Then worlds and globes. He will study as a silent watcher will learn from the divine one who is the great alchemist of all the universe, the greatest alchemist of all the creation of life, the maintenance of form and the building of worlds. God is the great artificer, the great creator, the great architect, the great alchemist in this realm that's the way i that was fucking beautiful bro like the way i i when i when i read that i was like wow that's fucking gorgeous you know what i mean <laughs> so he has the ouroboros here and he talks about the serpent and the serpent crown of the ancient gods this crown is the symbol of mastery and the union takes place within the student when the life forces are lifted to the brain and then we have chapter four the egyptian initiate we have the gmail logo here but you want to talk about your little apron there dude oh yeah we, we mentioned that earlier <laughs> that it, it sort of represented this symbol of purity and it was covering up the the sacrum bone or or this like scorpio energy yeah and then he has here the in the triangle we see spirit descending into the square of matter again the cube of matter the cube that that creates everything let it let us so purify matter that spirit may shine through it and make of us lights to guide the footsteps of humanity. So again, when you look inward and when you figure all this stuff out, you're supposed to, right? I think you're supposed to, uh, the Stokes were all about helping their brethren, helping the next one awaken. And I think that's what we're doing right now with, with this, with this, this book, we're bringing forth this light and helping other, you know, helping shine the way for others and maybe their journey and I know it sounds cheesy, but this is what it's all about, right? Conspiracy leads to spirituality, as Sam Tripley says. And that's that's the case for me. Every you know, whenever I look into something, it always leads back to God. Now, God with a capital G is open for interpretation, as you may know, uh, for a lot of different people. How we mentioned earlier in the episode, but at the end of the day, it's all about the. They say the ultimate red pill is what worshiping God, and I've understood that now. What you make of that is up to you right whatever god you want to worship uh, whatever given point in time but again that's what sandals, sandals beard robe cloud <laughs> <laughs> so we have here the talks about the sacred scarab in this form the egyptians worship uh capira the rising sun the sacred carob was uh yeah and i this was interesting to me. The sacred scarab was buried with the dead as a symbol of resurrection. That was interesting to me for as the sun rises from the darkness of night. So the divine spirit rises from the body that is no more. The life is yeah, eternal. This is, this is the, the dung beetle, right? Yeah. The scarab. This is the one that 
that creates this big ball and and moves it, and this is supposed to be representative of the the sun as well. Yeah, yeah, and I, th- that was very interesting to me. I have here. Did you highlight anything in that chapter? Because from the Egyptian initiate, I highlighted like two or three things because I wasn't. Honestly, the the biggest thing that blew my mind again was the reference back to the sacrum bone and the upside down spade, and they likened that to um, the hat of one of the pharaohs, and they kind of show how it's essentially that same shape uh, of a spade so that it was he was trying to draw this this correlation between all the different you know, the sacrum bone the spade the gravedigger spade um the spade and a deck of cards all kind of being the reference to the same baser scorpio energy at chapter five we have the ark of the covenant and this was one that stood out to me too because it reminded me of pandora's box right where you have this box that have that has all the secrets to everything and he says in all mystery religions of the world individually and co- uh, cosmically the ark represents the fountainhead of wisdom and he pretty much talks about how ev- how we all have a birthright right to see what was in the ark and and to to be able to partake in whatever secret well, it's like the, the tree of knowledge right the apple yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. To be able to, again, it's all about, I'm starting to get the fucking picture here. And the, and the symbolism of the pyramid is all about looking within, right. The, 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 the pyramid symbolizing the man, the, the body of man, right. And that, that the point is that, that inward or outward or whatever the fuck, you know, that the, the ether, you know, like the higher consciousness type of shit. And again, it's a reoccurring theme in a lot of the shit. And, I highlighted here. I think you mentioned this too in the ancient Egyptian where he's got the the diagram of the Great Pyramid mm-hmm. and it's got the three sections. And to me, I I don't know if I was misinterpreting this, but it's kind of a correlation with the Holy Trinity where the Holy Spirit is this this uh, inner temple that's deep under the um, sort of like the bottom of the pyramid. And then at yeah. the bottom of the pyramid, the base, that's sort of like this physical, you know, Jesus energy and then the sulfur or the, you know, the God aspect, I think would kind of be like that capstone, which is missing, that kind of binds all the sides together. Yeah, that Christ co- uh, consciousness, the, the, the upper, the, the bottom was the pit, which is earth. The middle was, yeah, well, well, I mean, we're going to get into it here. Uh, I, and then speaking of the brain, in the brain of man between the wings of the kneeling cherubim is the mercy seat. And there man speaks with a, well, check this out, it's fucking crazy speaks with his God as the priest of the tabernacle spoke to the spirit of the Lord hovering between the wings of the angels. Man is again the ark, and within him are the three principles, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the tablets of the law, the pot of manna, and the rod of bud- that budded. So again, we have here the symbolism of the rod that budded earlier, right? And he's bringing all these other things, the pot of manna, and the tablets of the law, tablets of the law being the Ten Commandments. And in these three things contained within the ark, we see the threefold spirit connected within the ark of man's body. So again, he talks about Solomon's temple or the perfected temple of the human body, the perfected temple of the universe and the perfected temple of the soul finally forms the perfect shrine for the living ark. So again, talking about us being these carriers of wisdom and these carriers of of this Christ consciousness. And we're able to achieve this through what the Gnostics talked about Gnosis through this sacred knowledge that is sacred to you in your own path. The Tetractus for the Pythagoreans, right? We have all these dots 
each dot symbolizing a fact or a point in time in between those intervals. And what the fact, the points don't change position. What changes is how you get from one point to the other. That interval in between is what changes from me to you, right? But me and you, Thomas, there's the two points. And no matter what, those points will always, always be there. The facts will always be the facts. The only thing that changes is our path to those facts, to those truths. Like this to the, the separat and the tree of life and, how, you know, ma uh, matter comes into being through uh, just like a thought, essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's what that's what Plato was all about, that we are reflections of these perfect forms in this higher uh, playing field or whatever the fuck you want to call it, right? That we're all in perfect forms of something higher, something, again, this higher consciousness. I wanted to mention this, too, uh, kind of a, a throwback to when you first started talking on this you mentioned that you kind of felt bad that you were so behind and you hadn't started looking into this. And here's Manly Palmer Hall that has been into it since he was like a young buck. And, you know, how far behind are you? But I, I don't remember if this is in the Republic or if it was in another um, writing about the Republic. But there was this quote that always kind of uh, that always nagged me. And it was something about Plato saying that you shouldn't read the Republic until you're 40 or that no, no one under the age of 40 um, will understand, you know, anything that's in this book. And I remember reading that when I was, I don't know, 17 or 18. <laughs> and I, I definitely didn't make my way very far through the Republic. But I read it again, you know, years later when I was like in my 20s. And again, that that quote was like, it was like, you know, you read it and you're like, fuck you, I, I, I can understand. You know, I don't have to wait another 20 years until this makes sense. But You're not my real I, dad. You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> yeah, but I, but I... I do. I mean, I'm 30, almost 38 now. So I'm like almost towards the age where I'm allowed to read the book and claim that I understand <laughs> it right without getting guessed. But, but I do feel like there's this, this crazy truth aspect to that, that great. Maybe you didn't read it when you were 20 or when you were 30 or when you're 40. Um, but when you do read it after you've got enough experience, like that'll be the right time for you to read it. Um, and that it's, it might be better to come across it later in life when you've got a lot more life experiences to draw on than if you read it really early and just kind of take away the cliff notes versions and, and never, you know, go back to it again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, yeah. I feel bad because again, I could have been further down in my, in my, again, but the intervals in between those two points, it, the, the only thing that changes is, is both our past, but those truths are always, history is always going to be history though. The fact will always be fact. It's just how you get to it or how long it takes you that is the problem, right? Or, you know, quote unquote, the problem. And not that it is a problem. And one of the things that stood out to me here was when through materiality and degeneracy, a great people are destroyed or a continent sinks beneath the ocean, Atlantis. Then those yeah. are the true, then those that are the true, are true are called around the ark. And its faithful servers are led out of the hand of the land of darkness into a new world a promised paradise. All great teachings set forth the same thing. And this is what really got me. The student will find that it is true. And when he allies himself with the powers of light, when he becomes a channel for its expression, and when he radiates it from himself to all who need it, then indeed will the light protect him and he shall become a son of God. Not a son like a brother and sister, a son like our fucking son yeah. of God. I was like, what the fuck? It's fucking crazy. Uh, we have here the Holy Grail. See in this 
uh, cup your body within, which is the lifeblood of the sun spirit of the universe. Each day that we live, we perpetuate, 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 Jesus, Jesus, amen, perpetuate the last supper and all that we do. We drink again the blood of Christ, the life power of the cosmos. Again, very beautifully put together, and that relates to the Eucharist, right? Maybe the 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 you know the the fancy word for the 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 cracker turning into the blood of Christ. What is a trans transubstantiation? Jesus, no, I didn't know that. I mean, remember, I'm not I'm not Catholic. Oh, I'm, that's right. Yeah, so you're Pentecostal. Yeah. <laughs> so snakes. That's right, snakes. We get into the Knights of the Holy Grail, and he talks about King Arthur and the stone and the sword. Whoever can draw this sword from the stone is the master of the universe. And he talks about the allegories behind different childish stories, right, that they have deeper meanings. And he gets into the Rosicrucian cross, and one of the things that stood out to me was when he talks about What's his name? Merlin, the magician, the, yeah, wa- Merlin. the wise man who it is said had charge of of the coming night during his youth. Merlin represents the hand of the elder brothers who, realizing that a great ego had come into the world, had consecrated themselves to the work of preparing him for his mission. And we were we were talking earlier about Joseph Campbell as well and the hero with a thousand faces and the power of myth and. In, in a Joseph Campbell or even like a Carl Jungian archetype uh, description, Merlin is that that wise old mentor. Um, so in, in the story, a lot of people take away, he's like this cool wizard and therefore he does magic. But essentially his role really was this wise mentor that was passing on wisdom and, and knowledge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was, and it was, but it was more about his altruism and, and you know how he carried himself. He in was that always fire. there. He came out of fucking nowhere. He's like, we need him. And right when they needed him, he fucking comes in clutch. And he's like, <laughs> God, you know what I mean? They're like they, they almost had us in the first half, coach. They almost had us. And then he comes in. He just fucking comes in clutch. And it was under the direction of Merlin, the mastermind that the anvil and the stone with the sword thrust into it were raised in the square of the city when it became necessary for a new king to be selected. It was he also who called all the brave knights of the country and told them that one, that the one who could draw forth the sword would be king for all of all the land. And of all the knights in the land, Arthur, the half-grown boy, was the only one. And then I said to myself, bro, when I was reading this, because the sword, right, the sword... The dragon, the sword representing the monad and the dragon, right? He talks about it in here, representing that lower aspect of man, the lower, right? Maybe the dark self, the, that, that Jungian aspect that we're supposed to overcome. The shadow, right? The shadow. I said, w- one of the questions I had was, who the fuck put the sword in the stone? Where did the sword in the stone come from? Where... You know how they, Merlin? Mer- Merlin is the one that puts it back into the stone to therefore bring about all of the, the candidates that are going to take it back out of the stone. So it was through alchemy or magic that he put it in the stone? Is that part of the story? I'm not familiar. I'm ignorant with the story. But my background with the story is the Disney cartoon, which is <laughs> the best rendition of that story, in my opinion. So, Yeah, but that's, that's, the, that's what I thought because I'm like, where I mean, did God come from? You know? Again, if you go back to that that Jungian archetype or like the Joseph Campbell, it's 
that's the call to action is the sword and the stone without without the sword being in the stone there's no call to action it's the catalyst for everything oh, else that follows fuck, bro i love that i love that the cube stone is the body it has been so symbolized for centuries and today among the masons the ashler experience experiences the anvil and it is upon the anvil that the sword is tempered the sword is spirit and he who would be king is the true spirit in the true spiritual sense of the word must first show his divine power by freeing the sword. Yeah. So what you were saying, right? This is what is the, the, what'd you call it? The, the, the calling to is the, the call to action the in call terms action. of like the, the hero myth. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the sword and literally in the movie, like in the cartoon, that sword being in the stone is the literal call to action for that entire story. Yeah, yeah. And he gets into the sacred spear, right? The the spear of passion that pierces the yeah, side the of spear of destiny. Yeah. And and the way I took this was you know, we have the the story of the two kings, right? One used it for good, one used it for evil, one caused destruction and the other one caused healing. Again, that duality, right? It's all it's all what you do with this information that makes a difference. So if you want to bring up bring forth destruction with that same information that I'm talking about or you could use it to spread a positive message, right? You have this duality again, the, the light and the, and the dark. And it's the, the dynamic energy of the universe, how he, how he puts it here. And let's see here. What else do we have? Uh, the, the sacred spear we find sim symbolized again, the creative force, which in the hands of Klingsor, the evil one wounds and causes suffering, but which when held by the pure, Pacifal heals the very wound that it created, that it caused. So again, these quote unquote dumb myths, right, that are so simplistic to children have these deeper meanings of duality and, and finding yourself within, which is fucking, fucking beautiful. Well, and, and they need to be dumbed down for children because that's what makes it survive the test of time. And the fact that it has these deeper meanings means that you know, people want it to survive the test of time. So it, like, I, I think it's, it, you, you can't look at any of it in a vacuum. They all, all the parts kind of coalesce together where you've got something simple enough, but impactful with interesting characters and plot lines and calls to action that anyone's going to remember. Like, just like me, right? I can remember the Disney plot of the movie. Um, but if you were to break down every little bit of symbolism, I probably wouldn't be able to remember all of that, but I can, I can regurgitate the general story of the sword and the stone. And if I go 40 years without knowing what any of the symbolism meant, and then I go and tell someone else, you know, I'm, I'm recounting the, the plot line for the movie. Someone else could overhear that and know all of the symbolism and all the mythology that I'm talking about, even though I'm completely ignorant of it. And the person I'm talking to is completely ignorant of it. And we're thinking about the cartoons and the squirrels running around. Right. But someone overhearing this that knows the backstory like they can hear that same knowledge being conferred yet again from thousands, you know, hundreds of years ago, not thousands, but, yeah. but it's, it survives the test of time just because of all these facts. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that makes perfect. It's like, uh, how would you explain it to a five-year-old? Right. Like break it down to the most simplistic way, even if it's shrouded in allegory. <laughs> and this is where you get, Oh, it's an old dude with sandals up in the cloud with the, <laughs> the robe on. Right. Cause Cause a five-year-old can put that image together 
and they think, oh, it's my grandpa, and oh, he can see what I'm doing, so I shouldn't steal that thing, and I shouldn't, you know, punch my sister or whatever, because it would be a lot harder to be like, all right, listen, Timmy, there's this abstract concept of, like, a spiritual flame and a physical flame, and, you know, there's this this morality, like, you can't really break it down to every mentality that way, so you kind of have to have that figurehead. Yeah, and we're moving on to the last and final chapter seven, the mystery of the pyramid, which we talked a little bit about. And we have the macrocosm and the microcosm, where when we first look at it in the distance, it seems to be one great stone. But as we come closer, we see it that is made of thousands smaller stones, each one carefully fitted into place. Here we see the first likeness between the pyramid and man. We consider man to be a unit. But when we examine more closely, we find that he has a great number of smaller units, each working in harmony with others. It is the same with everything. We take a successful life and we think of it as an eternity. But when we examine it, we find that it is a number of small achievements joined together. Fucking beautiful, bro. That's beautifully. And, then he, and then he draws a, a mic drop at the very end on the last <laughs> page. So again, you have the... He breaks down the symbolism. The four-sided base of the pyramid represents the four elements of which man's bodies are composed. These are hydrogen, nitrogen, oxygen, and carbon, or earth, water, fire, and air. These are called the base of all things. And upon this base of four bodies of man are raised, each form, each from its own element. Thus, the physical body is raised from the earth. The, the vital body is raised from the water, the emotion, emotional body from the fire, and the mental body from the air. And... Again, he has this different, uh, he labels every single different part of the pyramid as, I'm trying to find it here, as the different parts of the human body. And let me find it here. All right, right here. So let us know, let us now enter the pyramid and passing through the corridors comes to the king's chamber as it is called. There are three great rooms in the pyramid which are of great interest to the student. The highest is the king's chamber, then below that is the queen's chamber, and down below the surface of the earth is the pit. Here, we again find the great correlation between the pyramid and man. The three rooms are the three great divisions in man, which are the seats of the threefold spirit. Again, the Holy Trinity. The lower room is the generative system under the control of Jehovah. The center room, or the queen's chamber, is the heart. So what we were talking about earlier under the control of Christ and the upper room or the king's chamber is the brain, which is under the control of the father. And this upper room is the coffer made of stone, the meaning of which has never been explained, but which the student recognizes as the third ventricle of the brain. So maybe perhaps and I know how much you love uh, Pythagoras too. this, the same exact analogy lies with uh, the Pythagorean theorem where you've got mm -hmm. the, the father, the son, or, or in some aspects they'll do like the male, the feminine, and then the child, which is the, the combination of the male and the feminine. But it's, it's to me, it's that same analogy of the Holy Trinity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then here he gets into it is said that Moses was, in, was initiated in the Great Pyramid, and some also say that Jesus was instructed there also, which I found that interesting. And we have, right, the missing capstone, and he gets into this here. The true stone, which is the head of all the corners, is missing. If we look at the reverse side of the United States seal, we find, again, the pyramid from which the top is separated. And Omar Kayyam, the Persian poet, gives us the secret of the keystone when he says, from my base metal shall be filed a key, which shall unlock the door he howls without. I don't know what the fuck that means, but 
I highlighted it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded fancy. Yeah, it sounded fancy. It sounded good in writing. And then we have the key and the cross. Upon the cross of matter that forms our bodies hangs the key to all the mysteries of creation. It is our duty to take this key and with it unlock the door that conceals from us the unknown. The key is the spirit. Release it. Right. He's, I'm imagining him like a fucking sermon. Like, <laughs> release it. Release him right now. And one of the things that fucking stood out to me, which I'm trying to find it here, which when he when he mentions Lucifer, which is super fucking Freemasonic, right? Is is that Freemasonic, bro? Can you can, can you confirm that, bro? Yeah. Well, again, that, that comes Illuminati from a, confirmed. It <laughs> comes from a reference from Albert Pike and Morals and Dogma. Almost almost every Freemasonic uh, reference to Lucifer comes from that source. And was it on here that he talked about the the tunnel inside of the Sphinx and how, uh, you know, it's the entrance. That was the original entrance into the pyramid. Yeah, and, and I want to mention, too, one thing that fascinates me to no end is that concept of the missing capstone. And on the back of the dollar bill, you get the all-seeing eye, the eye of providence, which sits as that capstone. But we were, we were talking a while ago on the phone about, in I think, the year 2000 or 2001, that the, the Freemasons worldwide... Um, we're trying to get the, the country of Egypt to allow them to put a literal gold capstone on top oh, yeah. of the actual Great Pyramid, like lift it down on a huge helicopter and everything and do this huge ceremony, um, which and the reason why it's so uh, fascinating to me, not just that, you know, they came together to put this gold thing on top of a pyramid briefly. But if if that capstone is meant to be missing because it refers to this sort of ineffable name or this you know th this thing that can't be spoken that unites it all then why the hell are they trying to unite it all with literal gold i mean i get the, the symbolism but it's almost like takes away from it i don't know I, I always found that beyond fascinating just the the missing capstone in general yeah and, and but i take that as like man trying to complete something like this enigma right this 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 missing piece uh where pythagoras referred to man as or Iamblichus, right, the theology of arithmetic, they refer to man as nine-twelfths, uh, which is the incomplete creature, the missing link, and a wheel that is incomplete cannot bear its load, right? So again, it's this missing piece that we are, uh, the nine representing man, the, the falling short of ten, because ten is the most sacred. So again, that's why I love Pythagoras, because all these numbers mean something, and it's literally the the language to the fucking universe. And this is what it's all about. It, bro, it all could, like what I said earlier, like what, it, what we and you just, were talking about. Just don't bring out the square root of one to him or <laughs> you're fucking out of here. <laughs> yeah, the monad is perfect. And I'm trying to find the fucking quote with Lucifer, but he, oh, I think it, I think this is it. Uh, oh, right here, yeah. Oh, all right, so we'll wrap it up with this. <laughs> he can only do this when he calls the thousands of workmen within himself together and binds them to the service of the higher man. There must be no traitors to murder the builder this time. I, I love that. That fucking like resonant. That's, that's the uh, Freemasonic reference to uh, Hiram Abiff. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the one that built the Solomon's Temple, right? That's the one that, <laughs> yeah. There must be no traitors to murder the builder this time. And Lucifer, the one rejected by man as the devil, is the one who must, through the planet Mars, send man the dynamic energy which man himself must transmute from the fire of passion to the flame of spirit. 
He then must take the tools of the craft and cut and polish his own being into the capstone of the universal temple. And can I get an amen? Uh, <laughs> <sure>. <laughs> so again, beautifully done. That, that was the end of it. I encourage the listeners to look into this, right? Look within and find, you know, interpret it in your own wor- way. And this is what this podcast, this, this series, if, if you will, is going to be all about. We're going to try and get into the nitty gritty of these books and these literature, you know, literature and these works uh, and trying to decipher them and the, the best way I can, right? Cause I'm not a fucking know it all or anything. I'm just another, stu- I'm another initiate of the flame, Thomas. I'm, a, I'm another. <laughs> Honestly, man, the, the Amazon review is like my takeaway from this. Cause I, I a hundred percent believe that's the con the whole concept of this book. And I, I I'm going to read a little um, excerpt from the, the last part too, that I think uh, Manly P hall kind of encapsulates this. And this is referring to initiates of the flame and, and how to recognize each other. And he mentions that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you seen people that somehow you liked regardless of their appearance? Have you seen other charming people which you hated in spite of their charm? Have you seen learned people who were fools or impressed you as such? Or people who knew very little yet you felt were wise? Those are the insignia of rank, which the loss of title or position can never destroy. Kings without crowns not puppets dressed in tawdry tinsel. And he, he goes on and on. But to me, that was kind of like the deepest message of this whole book was that, again, it's it's that like real recognize real. Like if yeah. if I, I can see in you that you're truly interested in, in learning about these deeper things and topics that you don't have to tell me about it. You know, you don't have to, like, it's almost like that Freemason thing. Like you don't have to go and wear like your, they call them porch masons. Like they go and they put on all their pins and they put on their fancy hat and they, walk around to kind of be seen to to be recognized as having all this extra information and that's kind of that whole um chasing down degrees and well i'm a 99th degree or i'm a 101 degree and you know like this kind of like rat race of it that all of that insignia and ranks and fancy titles means absolutely nothing as soon as they open their mouth and you can tell that they're doing it for the gram you know it's it's sort of that like if, if manly p hall was writing this 100 years later i really think he'd be writing you know real recognize real don't do it for the gram peace <laughs> on out you know that's that's kind of what i read what, what i read out of this yeah you know and again uh, and, and, and i'm going to finish on on what he starts in the very beginning of this book cuz this kind of this blew my mind in a in a cool way he says the world is the schoolroom of God. Our being in school does not make us learn, but within that school is the opportunity for learning. That it has its grades, it has its classes, it's got science, it's got art, and admission to it is just the birthright of man. Just you being born into the world is you being admitted into this school that you're not necessarily going to learn anything if you just fucking sit in class and and you know twirl the pencil around and, and you just kind of like joke off. But if you pay attention... And one of, one of my like life philosophies just comes down to just give half a shit. If you just give half a shit about anything you're doing, you're probably going to be leagues ahead of other people that are doing the same thing that don't give any shit. Yeah. So I, I strongly, strongly, and, and I kind of read that into this book that the whole like kindling the flame and making sure that, you know, you pass the torch. And to me, that's, you know, give at least half a shit. And, and, he, and he goes on here and he's saying that 
um, the examples in this school are nature and the rules of the school are God's laws and that anyone that goes into the greater colleges and universities must first day by day work through the common school of life and present their new teachers the diplomas they have won upon which is written the name that none may read save those who have received it. And again, this is that real recognized real mentality. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And I'm trying to find where he said at the beginning, it's like, be thy man or, or what was the, I can't find it. Cause I fuck, I, I could have literally highlighted this entire fucking book. Cause yeah. the, the entire time. <laughs> was just picking out specific quotes. Cause the whole thing is like in a big book. Yeah. But at the end of the day, Thomas, he who lives the life shall know the doctrine and real recognize real. That was the initiates of the flame by Manly P hall. I encourage everybody to go out and read it and interpret it the way that you see fit and see what sort of gnosis you can extract from this sort of writing, because this man was so ahead of his time and, yeah, and keep in mind as you read it that it was a hundred years ago that this guy was writing was this in a way or that you can still read it in such a clear way. Like you don't need to open up a separate book on like a Latin dictionary and do all kinds of cross-referencing. He's talking to you as a normal human being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, go ahead and Thomas, plug your shit. So the listeners that are still America.com, read about comics, about Pythagoras and Diogenes taking shits on people's chests and uh, time traveling and fighting Nazis and anything you can think of that has to do with the cult, esoteric research and conspiracy theory. ParanoidAmerican.com, at ParanoidAmerican, Instagram. Awesome, bro. And I'll, those links will be in the description. And what, what are we going to do next, Thomas? Are we going to do Gustav Lebon, the crowd? I mean, we, we both read Gustav Lebon, the crowd, and I, I think it's a seminal work, not necessarily on esoteric and occult research, but again, it's, it was a book that shaped the thinking of so many powerful people that came after it, that use it as inspiration that I think it, it will give a whole bunch of extra context. Cause it, like just trying to draw correlations here when Manly Palmer Hall is talking about the man as a unit and the collection of these small pieces into the greater whole, that's got some correlations to what Albert Pike talks about how um, he mentions gunpowder, that if you just burn a pile of gunpowder out on an open table, you've lost all of its potential. And that's essentially just pure chaos. And he sort of correlates that to a crowd of unruly people that don't have any structure. But if you were to take that same gunpowder and put it inside of a casing and put it inside of a rifled barrel, now all of a sudden, you know, you can focus that same exact amount of energy and create things that you would never be able to create with an unruly crowd. Um, so, and the, the key word here being crowd, well, Gustav Le Bon, the, um, in his book, the crowd, he kind of describes these, these two dynamics of this unbridled chaotic energy that if you don't control it, it can just wildly burn out of control and be unpredictable. But if you know how to sort of shape it and harness it and direct it, you can turn that into, I want to say either a really nice fireworks show or a fucking war and, you know, <laughs> guns and bullets and bombs. Um, but it, but it's all about harnessing that that energy of a crowd, and I, I think that's going to be uh, a reoccurring theme across everything else that we we look into. Yeah, and ladies and gentlemen, that was the next episode of the Occult Book Club. That was episode two of the series. <laughs> Thomas just gave it <laughs> yeah. on. I'm good number three now. <laughs> 
Well, dude, had a lot of fun, man, reading this, and it was last minute, right? Read this. Uh, I appreciate you bringing it up because I I never had heard of I was it. Oh, surprised. Yeah, me me too. But honestly, Secret Teachings, and I've read the New Atlantis, and maybe like one or two other books. And when you mentioned this, I'm no, I've because I've gone on Amazon and typed Manly P. Hall and seen like, oh shit, this dude's got like twenty or thirty books. So, you know, I don't know if I've got time to read them all. But this being his first one. And the fact that it was 1922, exactly 100 years ago, this was the perfect entry point. I think, bro, I think that the next fitting title that we should probably do one on, uh, you know, if we're sticking to the occult and esoteric, mm -hmm. is The Lost Keys of Freemasonry. And it's only 105 pages, well, from what I'm seeing on here. And I think it's, t you know, since I learned something new about you today, I think it's it's touching that we get into that work. What do you think? Yeah, whatever you want to do, man. I'm, I'm voting right off the bat for uh, Morals and Dogma by Albert Pike, which is it's very specific. <laughs> so well, it's 860-something pages, but yeah, but it's it's very specific to Scottish Rite, Freemasonry, um, but also Secret Doctrine, which is also a super long book. I think it's well over 800 pages. You ever heard of Godfrey Higgins? Maybe. Is that is that one you're proposing? Uh, the Anaclipsis, which is again, he's a high-ranking Freemason, and he he talks about well, high high-ranking is always makes me uh, uh kind of like giggle a little bit because again, technically there's first degree, second degree, third degree, entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason, and there is no higher level of masonry than master mason. So to say someone's a high-ranking mason um, always sounds a little bit silly. This is the Anaclepsis, an attempt to draw aside the veil of the Psytic Isis, and then an inquiry into the origins of languages, nations, and religions. And Godfrey Higgins, again, the Anaclepsis, it's pretty short. I think we can get into that and digest yeah, that. Yeah, let's do it, man. Let's do it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate anybody who has stuck with us this long, right? This went on longer than I thought. But I had a lot of fun, and hopefully we'll see you on the next one. Thomas, thank you for coming on again, bro. And I'm looking forward to breaking other pieces down with you, bro. Yeah, real recognize real, man. so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.